Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Thirty-sixth District Police Station. This is Sergeant Harity speaking. Something awful's happened. Something absolutely awful. Calm down, ma'am. Tell me what's going on. I didn't see it myself, but I heard the noise. It must have been a machine gun. My neighbor says a bunch of men are dead. Dead! Where did this happen? Loftus! Yeah? Go check out 2122 North Clark Street. She says there's been a shooting. A shooting? Ain't that every day in gangland? Lady says seven people are dead. I don't think this is an everyday sort of thing. Holy. Seven? Seven people? I'll get my keys. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Last week, we covered the dramatic gangster warfare that all built up to the most brutal massacre Chicago had ever seen. This week, we'll cover the investigation into the massacre and all the twists and turns that took place throughout. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre was the culmination of a long-running blood feud between the competing kingpins of 1920 Chicago. So, for our investigation into the massacre, we're inviting the hosts of ParCast original Kingpins to help us dig into the criminal underworld. We have Kate. Hi, Unsolved Murders listeners. And Howell. Hello, everyone. If you're interested in learning about the rise and fall of kingpins and queenpins, you can check out our show, Kingpins, every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. 
Throughout the 1920s, the city of Chicago became a battleground for two equally powerful and violent gangs. One was the predominantly Irish Northside gang, originally led by Dean O'Banion. The other was the Chicago outfit, or Southside gang, originally led by Johnny Torrio. The two gangs clashed over territory and profits, and through a series of battles and bloodshed, the original leaders and many of their lieutenants were killed or scared out of the business. By 1929, Al Capone was leading the South Side while George Bugs Moran had taken over the North. Moran had made several unsuccessful attempts at killing Capone, who was determined to put an end to his rival once and for all. After months of planning, it seemed that Capone's men had finally taken action on February 14, 1929, St. Valentine's Day. Five of Moran's top men and two civilians were gunned down in brutal fashion in the SMC Cartage Garage on North Clark Street, one of the Northside gang's headquarters. Well, neighbors who heard the gunfire called the police and Sergeant Thomas J. Loftus was the first police officer on the scene. He opened the door and was witness to pure carnage. Albert Kashalek, Moran's right-hand man, Adam Heyer, Moran's bookkeeper, Albert Weinshank, one of Moran's business managers, Reinhard Schwimmer, an optometrist, John May, a mechanic, and Pete Gusenberg, one of his two best gunmen, all lay in pools of their own blood. One man's corpse lay draped over a chair, while two of the dead bodies had their heads blown open, likely from shotgun fire. Amidst the dead lay Frank Gusenberg, Pete's brother and an accomplished gunman, still breathing even after being pumped full of lead. Loftus recognized Frank immediately. Do you know me, Frank? Yes. You're Tom Loftus. Good, good. Do you want to tell me what happened while you're still here to talk? I won't talk. You sure? Cops did it. (laughs) I'm sorry. Did you say cops? Cops! Huh. You're in bad shape. You sure about that? For God's sake, get me to a hospital! (laughs) The doctor is on his way. Loftus left Frank on the floor and began to look around the room. Based on the layout of the bodies, he figured it was most likely that the victims had been lined up against the wall. He even asked Frank if his deduction was correct, but Frank once again refused to talk. The ambulance arrived shortly afterward and took Frank to the nearest hospital. Another doctor arrived to check the pulses of the remaining men, and after a short examination pronounced them officially dead. Loftus had a friend call the police station to inform them that the reports of violence were even more dire than they had imagined. This was the worst act of brutality he had ever seen. As police rushed to the scene, reporters took note, and word of the killings quickly spread throughout town. Newspapers began to print miniature papers that same day, packing their columns with stories about the attack. The Herald and Examiner was the first paper to give the killing a name, saying in their lead sentence, Chicago gangsters yesterday graduated from murder to massacre. 
In their haste, the papers often printed false information, but most people were unable to check the facts at the time. Of course, the incorrect details weren't all that important in the grand scheme of things. The effect the massacre had on the public would have been stark regardless of the misinformation. Howell and Kate will help us by explaining the reaction the public had to the story. Thanks, Carter. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre was the culmination of nearly a decade of gang warfare. And for most of Chicago, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Gangland assassinations had become so commonplace that Chicagoans had largely grown accustomed to gang violence. They believed that as long as the gangsters only murdered each other, the killings would have no bearing on their day-to-day lives. Up until the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, most shootings only involved the deaths of one or two people at a time. Every once in a while, three gangsters would be gunned down in a single instance, and those stories would make the front page. But for the most part, the killings were simply business as usual. But when seven people were murdered in cold blood, and two of those people were not gangsters but average citizens, it forced the people of Chicago to confront just how far their city had fallen. The public responded with shock and outrage. The average person felt these dangerous gangs had to be stopped, and they began applying pressure on the crooked politicians and corrupt policemen to end the gangsters' brutal activities. But rather than addressing their own poor enforcement of the law, many politicians responded by pointing the finger at the law itself, prohibition. This became even more pronounced when big-time political figures in Chicago publicly declared prohibition the ultimate cause of the violence. The most impactful of these statements was made by Chicago's police commissioner, William F. Russell. Prohibition is the root of these gang killings, and despite the most vigorous efforts to stop them, they probably will continue as long as the Volstead Act is a law. Take away the incentive by legalizing the sale of wholesome beer, and you eliminate the bootlegger. While some prominent members of the public contested that police corruption was the primary factor in allowing gang violence to spread uncontested in the streets, almost everybody agreed that prohibition should end. Some felt that prohibition was unenforceable. Others felt ending prohibition would also put an end to organized crime. Most simply wanted to drink. But whatever their motivations may have been, the movement to end prohibition had gotten a swift kick in the rear from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. In an ironic twist of fate, Capone's efforts to consolidate his power and profits had started a process that would eventually undercut the core of his business. Yet, at the outset of the investigation, Capone was not even considered the most prominent suspect. Frank Gusenberg had survived the initial shooting and was rushed to the hospital, only to die from blood loss three hours later. His only statement to Sergeant Loftus had been that the gunmen were cops themselves. To make matters more interesting, several other eyewitnesses to the gunmen's escape testified that they had seen two police officers escorting men that they assumed to have been mobsters to an undercover police vehicle that had been parked on the street. Thus, for a short time immediately following the slayings, police officers were the number one suspects. 
even though this theory didn't quite line up with what Loftus believed had happened. Sergeant Loftus knew that none of his men could have carried out the attack, as they were all accounted for. The other police precincts all reported the same thing. Their men had been occupied doing their jobs elsewhere in the city. Furthermore, the massacre simply wouldn't benefit even the most corrupt police officers. Crooked cops were crooked because they got paid by the gangsters. No matter which side of the gang war those gangsters were on, killing so many men from one side would likely cause the targeted gang to stop working with the police altogether, effectively killing their paycheck. Witnesses had also seen these supposed police officers escort two hoodlums to the vehicle on the street at gunpoint, as if they were arresting them. It didn't make sense for police to kill seven men, then arrest two others. And the two hoodlums never turned up in any of the city's holding cells or temporary prisons. If the shooters had been cops, where had they and their prisoners gone? The theory seemed flawed to investigators right from the beginning. Luckily for them, they didn't have to wait long before they found evidence to bolster their doubts. On February 18th, officers that were canvassing the neighborhood for potential witnesses of the event spoke to Mrs. Minnie Arvidson, the owner and operator of a boarding house that was across the street from the SMC Cartage Garage. I remember it pretty clearly, actually. This guy knocked on my door on a Sunday, January 27th to be exact, and he asked if I had a couple of rooms available. Two rooms? Why would one guy ask for two rooms? He said he had a friend who needed a place to stay, but that's not the important part. See, as soon as I said I had the rooms, he said he wanted them. Gave me a dollar to hold them without even asking for a tour. Two rooms for a dollar. Was he only staying a single night? No, no. He said he'd pay the full balance the next day. But when I get there to meet him, it's the other guy, and he requests a room on the first floor, says they're both cab drivers, and asks if I have a garage to rent. So you saw the cars they drove? No, I don't have any garages. Never saw the cars. But then... The next Monday, I go round to collect the rent, and both guys were staying in the front room. Looked like they were both staring out the window. I ask what's wrong with the second room. They say they can't afford it. Why'd they rent it in the first place? You tell me. After telling the police about these suspicious men, she then described their appearances. One was 5'8", looked between 30 and 35 years old, had fair skin and brown hair, and looked to weigh about 150 pounds. The other was 5'10", looked between 28 and 30 years old, had blonde hair, a light complexion, and a thin face. Both men had given her their names, but the Chicago PD soon discovered that those names were pseudonyms. It seemed that whoever these men had been, they weren't cops. And these deadly killers were still wandering the streets, likely biding time until they could kill again. The investigation gets downright explosive after this. And now, back to our story. By February 18, 1929, Investigators were still searching for the men who had gunned down seven people in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. 
In their search, the police had found a single lead, an apartment where two men had acted as lookouts for the massacre. They had gotten descriptions of the lookouts and canvassed the area asking if anyone could identify any known thugs as the men who had been staying in the apartment that morning. Witnesses were unable to confidently identify any of the pictures they were shown at the time. However, two witnesses thought at least one suspect looked somewhat similar to the man they had seen in the boarding house on St. Valentine's Day. They partially identified a man named Harry Keywell, who was an infamously violent gangster and part of the notorious Purple Gang. The Purple Gang was a group of thugs who ruled Detroit's criminal underworld with iron fists and lead bullets. They had started out as simple extortionists, but after Prohibition, they had become the predominant bootleggers in the area, notorious for the overt violence they would use against anybody who stood in their way. The Purple Gang was feared by bootlegging gangs throughout the country, as they would often kidnap and ransom prominent mobsters, all for a quick buck. They were also known to be contract killers, and were frequently hired by various gangs to eliminate their rivals. The horrid reputation of the gang made Harry Keywell seem all the more plausible as a suspect. But as some officers tried to track Keywell down, the investigation itself began to fracture dramatically. The press published massive amounts of wild speculation, pushing hundreds of wildly unfounded theories into the public mind. Following the lead of the reporters, each official crime department within Chicago began chasing their own leads and explanations for the killings all hoping that they would be the one to get credit for solving the mystery. The local police station, the Chicago Detective Bureau, the state's attorney's office, and even the Chicago coroner's office each had their own investigations operating at the same time. As one agency narrowed down leads and crossed out potential suspects, another would find evidence pointing in a completely different direction. These agencies often refuse to communicate with each other, withholding evidence in order to maintain authority within their own districts. It's also likely that some agencies discarded evidence to protect mobsters who were paying them. Thus, what had initially begun as a citywide effort to solve the crime quickly devolved into a political battle of posturing and pageantry. For instance, when the district police managed to get their lead on Harry Keywell, officers began telling the press that the mystery would be solved in a matter of hours. Some even claimed that the suspects were set to be arrested the very next day. When other investigating agencies heard the police had declared the case nearly closed, they also contacted the press saying they were the ones who were about to solve the case, and they would do it faster and more efficiently, too. Of course, all of these agencies were lying to garner the attention and praise of the public, and to keep the public from pressuring them to clean up the streets. If the investigators looked effective in their actions, they hoped the public would forget how ineffectual they normally were. Predictably, their overblown claims blew up in their faces when the police finally tracked down their primary lead. They found Harry Keywell in Detroit and questioned him about the shooting. However, Keywell provided them with an airtight alibi. 
Unfortunately, the specifics about Keywell's alibi have been lost to time, most likely due to the lack of a centralized investigation. Today, we do not know the specifics that proved Keywell's innocence, but at the time, it was clear to investigators that he had not been involved in the St. Valentine's Day shooting. Just like that, the police department's most promising lead had proven to be a dead end. As the police investigation faltered, rival investigative agencies seized the opportunity to take charge of the case. The coroner's office, and specifically the coroner himself, Dr. Hermann Bundesen, decided to try its hand at solving the crime. Bundesen was an incredibly competent doctor who had made a point of staying clean in a dirty city. He also had a major positive impact on the lives of Chicagoans, as he had greatly decreased the infant mortality rate within the city by publishing his groundbreaking book on the science and practical methods of breastfeeding and child-rearing, titled Our Babies. He was a beloved man by the people of Chicago, and when he announced his investigation to the public, he did all he could to maintain an air of professionalism and integrity. For instance, unlike the many law enforcement agencies that had claimed they would solve the case in a single day, or pushed wild theories that would later prove to be untrue, Coroner Bundesen publicly withheld judgment on the case until he was able to acquire all verifiable facts on the murder. In order to assist his investigation, he called together a jury of six of the most highly esteemed individuals who lived in the city of Chicago. Two were prominent businessmen, four were lauded lawyers, and all six were known to be clean and free from mob influence, unlike the police and politicians of the city. One of these six men was Bert Massey, the president of the Colgate-Palmolive Pete Company. He was particularly passionate about solving the case and fighting crime in the city, and he had a suggestion for how they could go about solving this particular case. Gentlemen, this is the crime of the century and a dark mark upon our city. It's scaring away respectable people and harming our interests, both professional and personal. But I'm convinced that if we want to fight the most sinister crime of the modern day, we must approach it with modern-day solutions. What do you propose? Well, my good coroner, I propose we examine all the evidence with cutting-edge science. There is a man in New York one Major Calvin Goddard, who has developed all new technologies specifically for the purpose of analyzing bullets and guns. He calls the study Forensic Ballistics, and I think it would be a great help to have him here, especially in a case such as this. I must say his work sounds incredible and quite helpful, but I'm afraid we're working with limited funds. There's no telling how expensive it would be to finance this man's operation. You're worried about funding? I'm the president of Colgate, for Christ's sake. I'll pay for it myself if that's what it'll take. Really? Well, then call him up. Get him here, post haste. With Bundesen's approval, Massey contacted Major Calvin Goddard at his lab in New York City. Upon hearing the offer to help assist in the St. Valentine's Day massacre investigation, Goddard eagerly began packing up his equipment to travel to Chicago. As Goddard was in transit, Bundesen and his coroner's jury began to take a closer look at the evidence that they had on hand. 
The coroner's jury went to the morgue and examined the bodies. They learned that the victims had all been shot in the back and that two Thompson submachine guns and at least one shotgun had been used in the shooting. This bolstered the operating theory that the men had all been lined up facing the wall before being gunned down. It would only make sense for them to stand against the wall if they were following orders from policemen, or rather, people who were dressed as policemen. Following their examination of the morgue, the coroner's jury returned to the scene of the crime, where they held a public reenactment of the massacre. Practically nothing was learned from this reenactment, but the public showing of competent men helped the average citizen believe that some people were earnestly trying to fix their city's crime problem. Next, the coroner's jury summoned the family members of the victims to see if anything could be gleaned from their testimonies. While there were some dramatic interpersonal details learned about the victims, the testimonies primarily confirmed what the jury had already suspected. The victims were all involved in, or tangentially related to, organized crime, specifically with Bugs Moran. Well, this information did little to narrow down the possible suspects. The coroner still wasn't sure if only one or all of these men had been the target, or even what the motive for targeting these men might have been. Most people didn't even suspect that Capone was involved as he had been spending much of his time in his vacation home in Florida, presumably distracted from the goings-on of his crime family. Well, to make matters more confusing, Bugs Moran himself was sending mixed messages to the public. While Bugs had gone into hiding shortly after the massacre, he somehow managed to contact the chief of detectives. He told the chief that he was completely unable to guess who might have attacked his men, saying... We don't know what brought it on. We're facing an enemy in the dark. But later that same day, Moran sent word to a reporter saying, Only Capone kills like that. While Moran's cryptic messages didn't clear up any of the confusion, this was the first time Capone's name was directly associated with the massacre. It was the first time some investigators began to look more closely at Capone and his cronies. One man in particular, machine gun Jack McGurn, was known to be one of Capone's top gunmen, and for some reason, he had been suspiciously absent from the public view since the massacre. As officers began in earnest to look for Jack McGurn, they were taken by complete surprise by an entirely different piece of evidence that appeared on February 21st, exactly one week after the killings. Holy cannoli, that garage just went up in flames. Honey, call the fire department, quick. Is that a, a man running from the building? Oh my gosh, he's burnt to soot. Looks like he's running straight to the hospital. I'm glad he's okay. I hope the fire department can get here soon. Oh, me too, honey, me too. A garage at 1723 North Wood Street had filled with a burst of flames, and a man had run out from the fire, clearly singed. When the fire department arrived at the scene, they quickly put out the blaze. As they entered the garage, they immediately noticed a burnt-out husk of a car, partially dismantled. After a brief examination, they determined the vehicle was a 1927 Cadillac touring car. 
This was the exact make and model of vehicle that most detective squads used at the time. They also found a siren haphazardly attached to the car, clearly present to bolster the illusion that this was a police vehicle. To make matters more interesting, an acetylene torch and a hacksaw were also present at the scene. Those tools had been used to take the vehicle apart piece by piece, but the person using them had cut directly into a fuel line without realizing it and set himself ablaze as a result. This vehicle was clearly purchased and modified to impersonate a police vehicle. The fact that people were trying to dispose of it made it look like particularly important evidence as well. It seemed to the police that this must have been one of the vehicles used in the attack on St. Valentine's Day. Confirmation that the shooters had impersonated police officers to enact their crime. It also seemed evident that the man dismantling the car must have been involved in the massacre in some way. The police began to search for the burnt man. They went to the nearest hospital, and a clinician there informed them that a bright red man had entered the clinic and sat waiting to be seen for a short time. However, before a doctor could see him, that man took off unexpectedly, almost as if he suddenly realized that the cops might find him there. They lost the trail of the burnt man there, but the car had still left plenty of leads to follow. The cops went to the landlord of the garage, who told them something very interesting. Officers? What do you want with me? You the owner of 1723 North Wood Street? Yeah, that's me. Who'd you rent the garage to? And when? I'm warning you to be honest. This ain't no game right now. Easy, pal, easy. I rented it to a guy named uh, Frank Rogers uh, back on the 12th. He paid for a full month up front, no questions asked. You get any more information from him? Yeah, he listed his address. 1859 West North Avenue. 1859? You kidding me? (laughs) You better not be kidding me. I ain't kidding. Honest. Well, then it looks like our Mr. Rogers lives at the goddamn Circus Cafe. You've been renting that place out to a bona fide mobster. The man who had rented out the garage had made a foolish mistake. The address he had listed with the landlord connected the burnt-out car directly back to the circus cafe, or more specifically, the circus gang. The circus gang was a small group of thugs and thieves operating on the north side, positioned directly between Moran's gang and Aiello's gang. It was led by Claude Maddox and Anthony Tough Tony Capizio, two former members of the Egan's Rats Gang in St. Louis. Their gang had also been a pain in the butt for their competitors, as they were the only organization in the north side of Chicago directly allied with Al Capone. For the first time in the case, the Chicago PD had finally acquired a direct line of evidence pointing to Scarface himself. When police sped to the circus cafe, they found that its doors had been closed. The cafe had shut down only a few weeks before, but the inside had been repurposed as a shooting range. Based on items left in the building, someone had just been there and jumped ship shortly before the arrival of the police. 
It seemed that whoever had gotten burnt in the explosion had raced to the cafe and warned his accomplices of the coming raid. The police found little of interest at the cafe itself. However, simply knowing that the circus gang was involved was confirmation that they were closing in on the true perpetrators. Police first focused their attention on Claude Maddox, the leader of the circus gang. However, their investigation into Claude soon met its end when they realized he had been held in police custody during the massacre on an unrelated offense, so it was impossible for him to have participated directly. The police then turned their attention to Anthony Tough Tony Capizio, or at least they tried to. While they searched for Capizio, he had managed to flee Police wouldn't be able to find him for quite some time. With Maddox out of the question and Capizio in the wind, police then turned to the next most prominent member of the circus gang, machine gun Jack McGurn himself. The police had already been searching for McGurn based on his reputation alone. But now that they had found a concrete connection to his gang, they had all the more reason to track him down. However, as they ran through the city streets looking for McGurn, something else caught their attention shortly after midnight on Wednesday, February 27th. An explosion rocked Maywood, a suburb on the west end of Chicago. As the neighborhood went to investigate, they found a 1926 model peerless touring car with smoke pouring from its engine in an alley. Well, this car was also one of several models that detectives used around town. There were also several interesting items found in and around the vehicle, including two shotgun shells that matched the ammunition that had been used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, stolen license plates with the Chicago Detective Squad license plate prefix number 787, and a single red notebook which had belonged to Al Weinshank, one of the seven victims of the massacre. A bomb had been planted in the hood of the vehicle, presumably to help destroy evidence. However, something had gone wrong. The bomb had only damaged the car's radiator and the car's hood, thus leaving behind all the other evidence for the police to find. With the appearance of this second bombed-out car, police had found both cars presumably used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, they decided to try and trace the chain of ownership to see if they could find out whose cars these were. Yet the case got even more complicated later that same day. Cops finally found machine gun Jack McGurn hiding out at the Stevens Hotel, a swanky establishment where he had checked in under an assumed name. But they were surprised to find that he wasn't alone. We'll find out who he was with after this. And now, back to the story. On February 27, 1929, almost two weeks after the St. Valentine's Day massacre, police had finally tracked down their main suspect, machine gun Jack McGurn. He was hiding out at the Stevens Hotel, but when they busted into his room to arrest him, they found he wasn't alone. Police! Hands in the- Ah! Whoa! Whoa! What are you doing? Can't you see we're busy? Jeez. Just put- put some clothes on. Look away! 
I can't look away. He's under arrest. Arrest? For what? You know what? The massacre on Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day? He couldn't have done anything on Valentine's Day. He was with me. With you? Doing what? Doing this. Ugh. When officers finally found McGurn, he was with his girlfriend, a showgirl named Louise Rolf. Much to their dismay, Louise claimed that McGurn had been with her during the massacre. To make matters worse, McGurn and Louise had checked into the hotel two weeks before the massacre had even occurred. However, police were convinced she was lying. Newspapers filled with articles about the massacre were lining the floors of their hotel room. And even though he had been checked into the hotel two weeks before the killings, there was no reason he couldn't have gone to help in the shooting, then made it back to the hotel to lay low with his gal. Disregarding Louise's claim, the district attorney's office decided to charge McGurn with seven counts of murder. They were convinced he had taken part in the massacre, and more importantly, they had promised the public that they would find who was responsible. It didn't matter to them whether or not that responsibility could be proven. As the cherry on their indictment Sunday, the district attorneys also decided to charge McGurn with one count of white slavery. At the time, white slavery charges were intended to combat forced prostitution and sex trafficking. But the legal definition was so broad that any man could be charged for simply traveling across state lines with an unmarried woman. Realizing the police were trying to scapegoat him, McGurn did the one thing that could stop these charges in their tracks. He married Louise as quickly as possible. By marrying his girlfriend, McGurn knew that the trumped-up white slavery charges would be dropped. Marrying Louise also provided him with another legal perk. Unfortunately for the prosecutors, they lacked the concrete evidence necessary to go forward with a trial against McGurn. They had intended to put Louise on the stand and pressure her into implicating McGurn in the crime. However, under the law, a person cannot be compelled to testify against their spouse in court. By marrying Louise, McGurn had left the prosecutors with nothing. McGurn was released and all charges were dropped. The official story was that McGurn spent Valentine's Day in his hotel room making love to his wife. The woman the press then dubbed his blonde alibi. With McGurn out of reach, the investigation continued elsewhere as officers followed the leads left by the fake police vehicles. The second vehicle they had found had been purchased by a Patrick Gleason. They traced Gleason's address and found it to be a vacant lot. It seemed clear that Gleason was a pseudonym and the chain of ownership was a dead end. However, the first car they had found had a slightly more interesting past. It had also been purchased by a man who used a fake name and a fake address. However, it had been purchased from an auto dealership that was right across the street from one of Al Capone's favorite hideouts, deep in Capone territory. Once again, the evidence was pointing straight back to Capone. But while the mastermind of the operation was becoming clearer, the specifics of who had pulled the trigger was still elusive. Coroner Bundesen and the other Chicago agencies each continued their investigations into the matter separately, often resulting in fractured and confusing newspaper reports. 
Yet even as each crew of investigators had access to different information, they all had begun to suspect the same thing. Capone had ordered Maddox and McGurn, the circus gang, to assassinate Bugs Moran, and Maddox and McGurn had both managed to prepare their own alibis weeks in advance. As they were most likely not at the scene of the crime, it seemed as if they themselves had outsourced the killings to some other thugs who had spent time at the circus cafe, Capone's American Boys. As we discussed last episode, Capone's American Boys were a collection of criminals and thugs who had once been a part of the Egan's Rats Gang in St. Louis, then worked with the Purple Gang in Detroit, and had finally settled in with Capone in Chicago. Claude Maddox had become close with many of the American boys, as he had also been a member of the Egan's Rats Gang in St. Louis. It also made sense for the American boys to carry out the hit on Moran, as they could reasonably pose as police officers without being recognized by Moran or his men. Two of these American boys, Fred Killer Burke and Fred Getz, had even been known to impersonate officers when committing crimes in the past. They certainly seemed like the most likely culprits, but so far, there was no evidence linking them to the crime. The investigations languished for months until December 14, 1929, when a tragic new crime in St. Joseph, Michigan, shed light on an old one. Burke stopped drinking. I stopped drinking when I... Oh, my head. You wrecked my car. What the hell do you think you're doing? I'm going home. You're drunk. You dirtbag. I'll have you sent to prison for this. You watch your mouth, wise guy. Officer, officer, over here. Officer, don't get the police involved. I see you got yourselves into a fender bender. Do we know who's at fault here? This man is clearly drunk. You should know to arrest him just by looking at him. Sir, have you been drinking? I ain't been doing nothing. I see. Well, put your hands behind your back. I'm gonna have to take you downtown. You ain't taking me nowhere. You, you shot him. I'll shoot you too, if you don't keep your mouth shut. On the night of December 14th, Fred Killer Burke was driving drunk. He got into a car accident and afraid of going to prison, killed Charles Skelly, the patrolman who had come to investigate the scrape. Burke quickly fled the scene and went on the run, but information gleaned from his license plate led the police back to his home. His living quarters proved to be a smorgasbord of helpful information. Police found a bulletproof vest, fake officer uniforms, pistols, thousands of rounds of ammunition, bonds that had recently been stolen from a bank in Wisconsin, and finally, two Thompson submachine guns. Based on Burke's past, they quickly made the connection that these guns might have had something to do with the St. Valentine's Day massacre that had taken place 10 months before. They quickly shipped the guns to Chicago, where they were examined by Major Calvin Goddard and Coroner Bundensen in their forensic ballistics crime lab. First, we fire the guns. Then we pick up the bullets. 
When we compare these bullets side by side to those used in the massacre, we'll be able to see if they were fired by the same gun. Absolutely fascinating. How exactly are you able to tell such a thing? You see, each gun has a distinct barrel. So as a bullet travels forward through it, the metal leaves markings on the side that can only be replicated by firing a bullet through the same gun. Think of it like a fingerprint for firearms. Magnificent. So based on that, these bullets are... If I pull them both into focus... Yep, these bullets are a match. Our friend Fred Killer Burke is aptly named as his guns were most definitely used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Using Goddard's newly invented scientific study of forensic ballistics, the coroner's office had finally found concrete evidence linking a known suspect to the crime. To make matters even more interesting, Goddard later matched one of the Thompson submachine guns to bullets used in the assassination of New York mobster Frankie Yale. The American boys had long been suspected of killing Frankie Yale at the behest of Al Capone, and now they had evidence pointing to Fred Killer Burke's involvement in that slaying as well. Finally, Chicago investigators had found enough evidence to pursue a case against one of their suspects. But before they could prosecute Burke, they would have to find him first. Burke had first disappeared on December 14, 1929. Papers declared him America's most wanted man, but he was exceptionally good at staying ahead of the squeeze. He wasn't found until one year and three months later, on March 26, 1931. Burke was arrested hiding out in a barn near Green City, Missouri. But instead of being sent to Chicago to stand trial for the massacre, he was sent back to St. Joseph, Michigan, and prosecuted for the murder of patrolman Charles Skelly. Surprisingly, Chicago investigators were fine with Burke standing trial in Michigan instead of Illinois. For most law enforcement officials, the murder of a cop was more heinous and more deserving of justice than the murder of mobsters, even if seven people had been killed all at the same time. Burke was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Because he had already been placed behind bars, the Chicago district attorneys decided not to press charges against Fred Burke for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. To them, a trial would be both expensive and unnecessary. Even though they had found the smoking gun and the man who had fired it, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre would remain unsolved for years afterwards. While Fred Burke had been identified as a participant, the rest of the killers had yet to be connected to the case or identified in any substantial way. That would all change four years later. On January 8, 1935, FBI agents raided an apartment full of thugs who had taken part in several kidnappings throughout Illinois. After a brief shootout which left one criminal dead, the FBI managed to arrest the rest of them. Among these men was a 33-year-old hoodlum named Byron Bolton. Bolton had been the right-hand man to Fred Getz and one of Capone's favorite American boys. We've got you dead to rights, Bolton. We can put you away until you stop breathing. With that said, there are some things we'd like to know. And maybe, if you're willing to answer our questions, 
We might be able to arrange a thing or two. I'll need a lawyer, but I got plenty to say, and I'm willing to say it. My wife will be royally pissed if I end up in prison. Before we get you a lawyer, we gotta know you know something. Will your information be worth letting you go? I know a lot of things you might find interesting. I know where the kidnappers are hiding. I know every blasted thing the Barker Carpus gang has done over the past five years. I even know about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, if you want to hear about that. We'd like to hear it all, if you don't mind. Bolton proceeded to tell the FBI everything he had ever witnessed throughout his life of crime, including the details of the St. Valentine's Day operation. From Bolton's confession, we know that the massacre was an attempted assassination of Bugs Moran. Capone had planned it in the fall of 1928 with one of his top men, Louis Campagna, three of his American boys, Gus Winkler, Fred Getz, and Fred Killer Burke, and two corrupt politicians, Bill Pacelli and Dan Saratella. Bolton himself had purchased the Cadillac used in the hit under a pseudonym, of course. The stakeout had been held for weeks before the actual murders, with the group using the Circus Cafe as their base of operations. Bolton claimed that James, Jimmy the Swede Morand, and Jimmy McCresson, two of Capone's men, were stationed as lookouts, and when they spotted a man who they thought was Moran, they called the Circus Cafe, summoning the hit squad. The group of killers was five thugs strong, they were Fred Killer Burke, Fred Getz, Gus Winkler, Ray Nugent, and Bob Carey, all members of Capone's American Boys. He claimed not to know who specifically had pulled the trigger, but by providing this list of names, he had given more information than anybody had been able to acquire before. He also told the FBI that Claude Maddox and Tony Capizio, leaders of the circus gang, had been the two in charge of disposing of the Cadillac after the fact. It had been Capizio who accidentally ignited the fuel tank, burning himself in the ensuing garage fire. Bolton didn't know who had set the bomb in the other car, but he assumed it was just another Capone crony. With all of that stated... Bolton had given the FBI a nearly complete accounting of that day and the killings that transpired. Unfortunately, the FBI didn't care about the confession in the slightest. At the time, the Federal Bureau of Investigation was extremely limited in its jurisdiction. It could only really investigate interstate crimes, such as car theft or kidnapping, and a gangland shooting from six years prior was of little interest to them. Even if they had wanted to prosecute based on Bolton's information, there was nothing for them to do. This became even more interesting when the FBI received a second account of that night from a woman named Georgette Winkler. Georgette was the wife of Gus Winkler, one of the men involved in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Her husband had been murdered in a gangland assassination in October of 1933. She had loved her husband, but hated his line of work. So, in an effort to warn away other young girls from falling in love with criminals, she penned a tell-all memoir detailing her life with one of Capone's American boys. She gave an expansive accounting of everything she had ever seen or heard from her husband and his friends, 
including a detailed breakdown of Capone's outfit, as well as an accounting of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. In the memoir, she largely corroborated Bolton's account, although she filled in some of the details that he had left out. She stated that Bolton himself had also been a lookout across the street. It seemed that he had lied to the FBI to downplay his own involvement in the crime. She also knew who had actually done the shooting. Her own husband, Gus Winkler, had stayed in the car in the alley as lookout and getaway driver, thanks to his well-known skills behind the wheel. Fred Killer Burke and Fred Getz were the two mobsters who had disguised themselves as cops. Both Burke and Getz had also been the men who fired the machine guns, ultimately killing seven people. Ironically, had they known what Bugs Moran looked like, they would have only shot him. Unfortunately, after having been falsely told that he was present, they decided to kill everyone in the room just to make sure Moran was dead. Ray Nugent and Bob Carey had also been armed, but they primarily served as lookouts posted up at the doors, while Burke and Getz did the killing. Georgette was unsure of who had fired the shotgun shells, but she assumed that Fred Getz had also done that after his machine gun ran out of ammo. After all, Fred Getz also went by the alias of Shotgun George Ziegler because he had a particular affinity for the weapon. Once the killing was over, Burke had escorted Carrie and Nugent out the front door as Burke drove them away and Getz had left out the back, fleeing the scene with Winkler. Georgette also detailed the events that followed the killings, but all her magnificently noted details actually kept her memoir from being printed. She had shipped it out to publishers all across the nation, but the information contained within was seen as too revealing and far too dangerous to print. Frustrated with the publishing business, Georgette decided not to let her memoirs go to waste. She sent them to the FBI and called it a day. With both Bolton and Georgette's stories of that day, the FBI had compiled the single most comprehensive account of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre that had ever been acquired. And yet, they still wanted nothing to do with it. They sent the information they had acquired to Chicago PD, but by then, they didn't care either, primarily because almost everyone who had been involved in the killing had already been killed themselves. The only people who had survived to 1935 were Fred Killer Burke, Byron Bolton, and Al Capone, all three of whom had already been captured by law enforcement and sent to prison. By that point, there was no criminal case left to pursue. Even the clean and competent coroner, Ermann Bundesen, closed his inquest into the case. His final report reading, the killings were by persons unknown. The FBI documents on the case remained classified, where reporters could not reach them. As far as the public was concerned, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre remained an unsolved mystery for the ages. This all changed decades later, when the FBI documents on the massacre were declassified. Much of the information contained within can be found in recent books written on the subject, including The St. Valentine's Day Massacre by William J. Helmer and Arthur J. Belek, which we found very helpful for our research. 
Once all is said and done, this seems like a pretty open and shut case. Al Capone himself ordered a hit on Moran, and his American boys messed it up by killing seven other people, drawing the attention of law enforcement and press from across the country. It would go down in history as one of the most shocking gangland killings ever conducted. The effects on those involved were drastic and severe. While Bugs Moran had effectively dodged a bullet by missing his meeting that day, his criminal career took a quick dive after the massacre. As most of his gang leadership had been eliminated, Moran's Northside gang was left without structure or any strong authoritative presence. He attempted to rally his men to his side, but the extreme violence displayed in the massacre had frightened many of his low-level guys away from crossing Capone. With a price on his head and no crime family to protect him, Moran fled Chicago and reverted back to his old career as an independent thug and safecracker. He was eventually arrested on July 6, 1946, while breaking into a bank in Kentucky. He spent the rest of his life in prison. Even though Capone's massacre effectively eliminated the Northside gang, ending the legendary Northside-Southside beer wars, the killings did little to benefit him personally. He was arrested for contempt of court on March 27, 1929, only one month after the massacre. He had been subpoenaed to testify in court the month before, but claimed he could not attend due to illness. Investigators discovered Capone had been lying about his health and charged him with the crime, only for him to flee the city once he was released on bond. Only two months later, Capone was found and arrested in Philadelphia and sentenced to one year in prison for carrying a concealed weapon. During his imprisonment, federal agents began auditing his income and found that Capone had deliberately been failing to file his income taxes properly. After being released from prison, Capone was immediately arrested again, this time on charges of tax fraud. He was tried and convicted on October 24, 1931, and sentenced to 11 years in prison. While Capone was imprisoned, one of his underlings named Frank Nitty took control of the Chicago outfit and its bootlegging operations in the city. Nitty became a powerful and feared mafia boss in his own right, but his bootlegging fortunes were soon lost, largely thanks to the influence of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The gruesome display of violence had shocked the nation and lit a fire under the seats of politicians and members of the public who were tired of drinking in dark rooms and hidden speakeasies. Anti-prohibition activists pointed to the massacre as the prime reason to end prohibition. If there were no illegal profits to be made from illegal liquor, there would be no incentive for bootleggers to fill the streets with blood. The anti-prohibition movement would eventually see their efforts bear fruit on December 5, 1933, when prohibition was finally repealed. The public celebrated in the streets in drunken revelry, but the mobsters who had made their fortunes with liquor were less than pleased. In the coming years, they would see a drastic cut in their profits and their power 
all thanks to Capone's horrific killings. The impact of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was truly massive. It's no wonder that the story is still so intriguing to this day. I suppose if there's a lesson to be learned from all this, it's that crime simply does not pay, and definitely not on St. Valentine's Day. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'd also like to thank Kate and Howell for assisting us with this episode. If you enjoyed our discussion of the criminal underworld, be sure to check out our podcast, Kingpins. In Kingpins, Kate and I discuss the biggest criminal masterminds, the empires they built, and the circumstances that led to their inevitable downfalls. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Giles Hofseth and stars Howell Hargett, Kate Leonard, Wendy McKenzie, and Carter Roy. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Susanna Corrington, Sky King, Steve Pinto, and Brett Schneider. <laughs>